You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 17. So a common trope in legendary stories from long ago all the way up to the to modern-day adventure books and movies is the idea of a person of destiny, uh, a chosen one, a person uh, born into the world to accomplish a particular mission, uh, to beat the bad guy and save humanity, and that's the, the whole reason for the person's birth. And once this person comes into the world, then at last there is hope. There's hope for the world. There's, there's hope for the galaxy, whatever it, it may be, wherever it, this takes place. And uh, from ancient tales of, of King Arthur in the past uh, to, to Neo in the Matrix or Harry Potter. And uh, sometimes these stories even involve a miraculous birth a la Anakin Skywalker of Star Wars. I think these kinds of stories are attractive to many because... We, humanity, have this dim collective memory of a divine promise given to our forefather Adam and our foremother Eve at the dawn of humanity, a promise of an offspring, promise of a child to come, a person of destiny who will come, who will fight evil and take everything wrong with the world and make it right. It's what all of us long for, it's what all of us hopes for. And so, in Genesis chapter 4, when Eve, with the promise of that special offspring still ringing in her ears, when she has a child, she celebrates, and she says with joy, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, and she names him Cain, and her hopes are dashed, because Cain becomes a murderer and kills her other offspring, Abel. Later on in Genesis 5, we meet a man named Lamech, and he fathers a son named Noah. And he's thinking that Noah is the chosen one. In fact, Lamech says, this one shall bring us relief from the curse. And Noah, after the worldwide flood, stands at the dawn of a new humanity, a new beginning. But in the end, our hopes are dashed because Noah also proves to not be a savior but a sinner and his descendants are no better. But as we follow the storyline, we see that God's plan of redemption is not deterred, and He sets His eye on a descendant of Noah, uh, the man Abraham, and He promises a son, a chosen one through whom the world will be blessed, and this chosen one will come through a miraculous birth. And when we get to chapter 17, it's been over 25 years since God first gave Abraham that promise. His wife, Sarai, for decades has lived in a state of infertility. She's now 89. Abraham is 99, and it's clear to him that both of them together naturally will be unable to have a child on their own. But we saw last week in the first half of Genesis 17 that God reiterates and even expands upon His promises. God says Abraham will become a multitude of nations. Now, how? Because... Being a true descendant of Abraham, we saw last week, is ultimately not a matter of race or cultural background or DNA. It's a matter of faith. As Galatians chapter 3 says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And so people of every tribe and and tongue who share in the faith of Abraham will be brought into the family of Abraham because of the salvific work of the special offspring to come through Abraham. However, the promise of worldwide blessing to a multitude of nations cannot be fulfilled apart from one nation, a nation consisting of Abraham's physical descendants, the people of Israel. And chapter 17 shows us the origins of Israel's national identity, which is significant because the original audience of Genesis are the people of Israel hundreds of years later who have just been delivered from Egyptian slavery, and they're about to enter into the land of Canaan to settle there as their own nation. And so Israel, hearing the book of Genesis for the first time, will be learning about their origins and their purpose and their, uh, their identity. And in the process of learning this, we as a church are going to learn about our purpose and origin and identity and how it all connects to the promised chosen one who will save the world. So please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the Word of God. Uh, We are in Genesis chapter 17. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, so we're going to start in verse 9 and read on down through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of the Lord. And God said to Abraham, "'As for you, you shall keep my covenant.'" you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you, at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. 
That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this is your holy and inspired word, and so, Father, I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear what your spirit would have to say to Harbin's church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is not identical to the church in the New Testament. And that's sometimes a challenge when going through the Old Testament and you're thinking about interpretation and application. There is both continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments, between Israel and the church. There are similarities and there are dissimilarities, and we're going to see both this morning, though I'm not going to be able to have time to totally delve into that for this sermon. But in the origins of the people of Israel, and in particular in the covenant sign of circumcision, we learn three things about how God's people then and now fit into God's redemptive story. The first thing that we see is that God is building a holy community. Look at verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Notice that the sign of circumcision is not just for Abraham. It's for everyone who will be associated with Abraham and with the promises, because God has never been interested in simply isolated, disconnected individuals. It has always been His plan to have and work through a people that are in community and fellowship with Him and with one another. And God is giving them here this outward mark to remind them that they were God's people and that they were set apart by God, for God's special purpose. That's, by the way, what the word holy means. It means to be set apart for God's purposes. text says they are circumcised, they are set apart from birth. Now, the Israelites would not be the only people practicing circumcision. Many people in the ancient Near East did this. So, this is not unique to them. Most notably, Egypt practiced circumcision. And that original audience for the book of Genesis, having just come out of Egypt, they would have known about the distinctives of the Egyptian practice, which would have caused Israel to reflect deeply on the meaning of their own circumcision. Because in Egypt, only two groups of people were circumcised, priests and kings. The Egyptian priests would have been seen as mediators between their pagan gods and the people. And the Pharaoh, the king, he would have been considered both king and priest, even a son of the gods. Therefore, he was consecrated to that God's service through circumcision. So, only the elite few had a royal and priestly role in the land, and therefore only the elite few in Egypt underwent circumcision. Uh, But this 
But this covenant that God is making with Abraham, God is showing Israel that unlike the Egyptians, it's not about the elite few. Instead, all of Israel's males are to be be consecrated to God for special service. And while Pharaoh was considered the son of the gods, God, in the book of Exodus, said to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my people go that they may serve me. And so they are, and they are all to be circumcised as, a, as an act of consecration on the eighth day after birth. Now, the eighth day gets its significance from the creation account. God made the world in six days, and then He rested on the seventh. Because the seventh day is indefinite, the eighth day was symbolic of the beginning of a new creation. And in the wake of a creation and a humanity that was ruined by sin and the curse, God's going to bring about a new creation, a new people through Israel. And so Abraham stands at the head of that new creation, kind of like a new Adam. So Israel's purpose is to serve as God's son, to bless the world. And this is why after God redeems Israel from Egyptian slavery, He takes them to Mount Sinai. And, and he tells them this in the book of Exodus. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what God is saying there is that I didn't redeem you just so you can kind of go off and do your own thing and just live life however you want to live. I have saved you. I have made you my people for a particular purpose. I'm the king. You are my son. And you'll be a royal priest with the purpose of glorifying me, representing me, imaging me, teaching others about me, and mediating my blessing to the nations. By the way, that helps us to understand why the people of Israel were placed where they were geographically as opposed to being placed in Madagascar or Australia. Uh, Canaan, the land of Canaan, where Israel was placed, was literally at the crossroads of the major kingdoms and empires of the ancient world. Uh, Gentry and Wellam, in their book, Kingdom Through Covenant, writes that Abram and his family are to be settled along the central spine of the internet in the ancient world. And when people travel in and through that land, what are people supposed to see? They are supposed to see a group of people who demonstrate a right relationship to the one and only true God and a right relationship to each other. God calls Abram to be a light to the nations, and so this is the beginning of his method and plan to bless all the nations through Abram and his family. Israel was strategically placed where they were geographically at the center of the ancient Near East so that they could be seen, so that they could be a witness to the surrounding peoples. Now, that was the situation of the people of God then. What about now? In our New Testament situation, Well, there's definitely some continuity there, isn't there? There's probably some things that I've said about Israel's role and purpose that remind you of the church. God hasn't saved us as isolated, disconnected individuals. God's intent both then and now is to build a holy family, a holy community, a family of people who love the Lord. 
And when the world views this redeemed community, the church, what are they supposed to see? Uh, They're supposed to see a group of people who demonstrate a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another. And by this, all men will know that we are Jesus' disciples by our love for one another. And we, God's people, were once a people in bondage, in slavery, not to Pharaoh, but to sin and the devil. And God has rescued us, and God says to us the exact same thing that He said to Israel when He redeemed them from slavery. God says to the church, He says to you that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. God takes that language that was applied to Old Testament Israel, and now He applies it to the the New Covenant community, the church. We have the same mission as Israel did to draw attention to the glory of God to the nations. But while Israel was to do it primarily as a nation placed in one place, like a a beacon to the surrounding communities, the surrounding people, it's the opposite for the church. We are to take the light of God and carry it to the nations. So in Israel, it was more like come and see. For the church, it's more like go and tell. Go to the ends of the earth, which is why Harbin's church supports missions both locally and abroad to play our small role in what God is doing. So God is building a holy community. But what's more, what we learn from Genesis 17 is that that God is building a people that are to be a people of the promise, a people of the promise. One One of the reasons why God is marking out His people by circumcision is because this sign is a mark on the male reproductive organ. And the focus of this section has to do with offspring, with the promise of the gospel that was announced back in Genesis 3.15 that the world would be saved through offspring, through a chosen one. And the covenant of circumcision would be an ongoing reminder to God's people that the promise would be fulfilled one day. And to take on that sign was to identify oneself with that promise. So everything about the covenant community was to revolve around that promise and to not identify yourself with that gospel promise, to reject the sign of the covenant meant expulsion from the community, which is why it says in verse 14, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, this promise of the gospel that Israel is to trust in is a promise that is rooted not in human efforts or works to make God's promise come true, but in the sovereign grace and power of God. Abraham is specifically charged to have that kind of faith. Look at verse 15. God says to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, Sarai means princess. God changes that name to Sarah. That means princess also. It's a newer form of the word princess. But the name change may be a way of saying that that while her old name pointed to the nobility of her ancestors, the new name foresees the royal nobility of her descendants. And that's indeed where God takes things in the next verse. He says, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I'll bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. 
Now, we spent a lot of time last week talking about God's royal purposes, that God's plan to save the world would involve a coming king through this elderly couple. So we're not going to take time today to get into all that. You can listen to last week's message online if you missed it. But right now, I want us to look at Abraham's response to all of this in verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And he says in verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. When Abraham considers the apparent difficulty of God's promises, he takes the easy way out. He pleads for Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that Ishmael might be the chosen one. May it be through him that the gospel promise moves forward. Why all of this crazy talk about a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman having a baby? Ishmael is right here. Uh, Let's just do this thing right here, right now, through him. But God says no. Verse 19 says, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. And God, identifying Sarah as Abraham's wife, may be a veiled reference to Genesis 16 which was all about human effort, human strength, human will in regards to making the promises of God come true. Thirteen years prior uh, in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah were getting older, and the promise of this coming child doesn't seem to be getting any closer, and so they scheme to bring a younger, fertile woman into the picture, Hagar. And Sarah says to Abraham, take her as a wife. If she gets pregnant, the son will be mine, and so then that way the promises will come true. And Abraham does it. And Hagar gets pregnant, and the result is Ishmael. But it was all sin. There was, of course, the sin of taking on a second wife. I think that's why in Genesis 17, God says, Sarah, your wife, your real wife, will have a son. It's also sin because what they did comes from unbelief, as if they, they thought that God needed help in making the promise come true. Uh, that this was some sort of cooperative tag team effort. They do their part, God does His part. But the fulfillment of the promise does not hinge on the strength, the ability, or the efforts of man. And the reason why there is a 13-year gap between Genesis 16 and 17 is because God is driving that point home. God is letting Abraham's biological clock tick all the way down to the point now where Abraham regards himself not as strong but helpless, indeed as good as dead. And now, in Abraham's moment of greatest weakness, now that Abraham is convinced that he is helpless, now God will move to do something glorious. What God wants to show Abraham and what God wants to show those Israelites later on who are about to go into the land of Canaan, who might be tempted to trust in their own strength to bring about the fulfillment of God's promises, God's saying to them that my people are not to be like the rest of the world, people who rely on their own feeble strength and efforts. My people will be fully and wholly reliant on my all-sufficient sovereign grace. That's how God's promises come to pass. And the sign of circumcision is a sign that God will bring about His will and His time and His way. Now, God's people today, you and I, are to be a people of the promise as well. 
While the covenant community in the Old Testament looked forward to the fulfillment of the promises, we look backward to promises already fulfilled in Christ. And like Israel, our hope is not to be rooted in our own effort and strength to save ourselves. It is instead rooted in the sovereign grace of a God who saves people who are convinced of their own spiritual helplessness, who call on His name. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 actually uses the situation between Sarah and Hagar as an illustration of this. He says in Galatians 4, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, Paul's going to continue his illustration, but his point here is that you've got a son, you've got one son who is born according to the flesh, according to human effort. And what Abraham did in that situation with Hagar is the same kind of foolish futility of people who are trying to make God's gospel promises of salvation come true by thinking that they can help God out and through their own strength, through law-keeping, through good works, save themselves. And the Galatian Christians, they were tempted to go back into that kind of slavery of salvation by rule-keeping, and Paul is persuading them otherwise, and he tells them, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. The idea is that just as Isaac was born through the miraculous power of God and not through human effort, so the Galatians and all Christians have become God's children through God's sovereign grace. It's the God who takes Abraham's dead body, dead reproductively, and, and, and takes spiritually dead, helpless, hell-bound sinners and supernaturally breathes life into them. In fact, the Apostle John describes Christians as a people who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And just as the birth of Isaac was a supernatural, miraculous work of God's sovereign grace, so every Christian in this room has come into the family of God, not through human effort, not through human strength, but solely through God's sovereign grace. God's people then and now are to be a people of the promise, who have faith in God, not in self. But with that said, Faith does not exempt God's people from works, and so God's people are also to be a people of obedience. I have in these past few weeks put a big spotlight on God's grace in His dealings with Abraham. But all of this focus on God's grace could give the wrong impression that the recipient of God's grace has absolutely no responsibility to live in a certain way, and that's not true. Even though, Abra, even though God is dealing with his child by grace, that does not eliminate Abraham's responsibility. Back in verse 1, God calls Abraham to walk before me. He says, walk before me and be blameless. Uh, Gentry and Wellam write that to walk before God means to serve as God's emissary or diplomatic representative, to be God's agent in the world. That's what Abraham was to be, serving in the world as God's son, serving in an Adam-like role to reflect God's character and image to the world. Same thing is true for the rest of Israel, who, reading Genesis years later, this nation, regarded as God's firstborn son, was reminded that even in light of God's grace, they themselves still had roles and responsibilities to fill in the world as God's agents. Now, in the immediate context of Genesis 17, 
Abraham's obedience is demonstrated in his submission to the right of circumcision. Do not gloss over that. Abraham is 99 years old. There was no anesthesia. And most scholars believe Abraham's surgery would have been self-inflicted. This is extreme. Extreme radical obedience. And even extreme radical obedience in the, in the fact that he's got to go now and tell the rest of his household, hey everybody, family meeting. God spoke to me this morning. And I've got a word for you. Uh, ladies, you can leave. You don't need to be here. Guys, this is for you. And then he lays it on him. That in and of itself would take an act of, 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 of obedient faith and trust in God. A radical, extreme obedience here. But Abraham's obedience isn't a cause of his salvation. It's a result of his salvation. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Faith is the root of our salvation. Obedience is the fruit of salvation. It's kind of an easy way to remember that. It rhymes. Faith is the root. Obedience or works is the fruit. Obedience to God doesn't save you. It is instead an evidence that you are already saved. And sometimes obedience can be painful. Jesus hasn't called you to do what Abraham did. And some of you are just like, amen to that. But he does say... If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, Jesus, is, of course, is not speaking literally as far as maiming yourself, but instead, Jesus is saying there, take whatever extreme measures you need to take to be obedient. Even if it seems extreme and far out to the world, do whatever it takes, no matter the cost, no matter how much it hurts, Jesus calls us to extreme, radical works of obedience, which you will never do unless you have faith. While we are not saved by our works, God always saves His people to works. That's a principle that runs throughout both Testaments. And so you have the Apostle Paul writing things like, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, not not a result of works, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's people are to do work. God's people are to live in a certain way that communicates and reflects something about God to the nations. And so, after God delivers Israel from Egypt, and He tells them, I've made you a kingdom of priests to live in the world as representative sons of God, right after that, God shows them what that looks like. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He saves them, and then He gives them the law, not the other way around. He he gives them the Ten Commandments and the the rest of the law of, of Moses to live out in response to their salvation. And that sign of circumcision introduced in the Abrahamic covenant continues in the Mosaic covenant. And the meaning of circumcision is further explained by Moses in the law. As we discover that the outward obedience of circumcision is meant to reflect 
and inward disposition of the heart. And obedience, true obedience, is not merely an external thing, an outward thing. Um, circumcision is meant to reflect wholehearted obedience and devotion to the Lord. The physical act of circumcision, the cutting away of the foreskin, was symbolic of spiritual cleansing, a cutting away of sin and impurity in the heart. That's exactly what Moses was getting at when he exhorts Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. There's a little spoiler, that that Jeremiah passage. I'll get to that in a moment. The heart, that concept of the heart in the Bible is a symbol of the person's will, emotions, and desires. And Moses here is saying that outward circumcision is not the most important thing. What's most important is not what you are outwardly, but who you are inwardly. And Moses warned not to just reduce circumcision to some sort of external ritual, uh, not to be content with merely an outwardly religious act while neglecting the inward purity that circumcision pointed to. But sadly, as you read the Old Testament story, the people did not heed the warning. Yes, there, there were always a few. There's always a remnant in Israel that genuinely did love the Lord. But the nation as a whole, to a large degree, failed in their calling to be a light to the world. They failed to be holy. They failed in their, uh, the, to trust the promises. They failed to obey the law. And consequently, they failed to be true agents and ambassadors among the nations. Instead of being distinct from the world, Israel becomes like the world, full of idolatry and immorality and injustice and corrupt rulers. And so God raises up the prophet Jeremiah, and he warns the people in Jeremiah 4.4. He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. But the people, they don't listen. They don't listen. And so then God says, I will punish all those who are circumcised merely, merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Notice that list of wicked nations, and notice that Judah and Israel are included. They are merely circumcised in the flesh. These were supposed to be God's people, yet they are counted among these other wicked nations because their circumcision is only an outward one and not inward. Outward circumcision, circumcision of the flesh, was not sufficient for anybody who would truly be God's people. As we read throughout the Old Testament, we tend to get frustrated with the, with the constant disobedience and apostasy of the nation. Maybe you feel that way as you're, as you're reading through, and you're like, man, they're, they're, just not, they're just not getting it. It's just not happening. They, they, they keep falling away. They, they, they keep going after other gods. They keep uh, uh, falling into apostasy. And, and it does get frustrating as you see this cycle as you're reading uh, the Old Testament. But you have to understand what the problem was. The heart of the problem was a problem of the hearts. 
And so it could raise the question, well, what about us? We've talked a lot about the continuity between God's people then and God's people now. So, so what does that mean? Will, will we share continuity with them in regards to failure as well? How do we know that we will fulfill the mission to be a holy community, to be a people who trust in the promises, to be a people not getting worse and worse, but a people growing in obedience and devotion to the Lord? What guarantees that you and I won't fall away and suffer judgment? Well, the answer, again, lies with the prophet Jeremiah, who talks about the heart's. And that God's people are to be a people with transformed hearts. Jeremiah accurately diagnoses the problem, the heart. But after the bad news, he offers hope in Jeremiah 31. I love this scripture. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Check this out. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and I will remember their sin no more. And then, in the next chapter, he says this, I will give them one heart, there it is again, and one way, that they may fear me forever. I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts. And what's the result? That they may not turn from me. We've talked a lot this morning about the continuity we find between the Old and New Testaments the people of God then and now, but, but here is the major point of discontinuity, and it all has to do with the heart. Follow closely. In the Old Testament covenant community, you had a community that was all circumcised outwardly, but they were not all circumcised inwardly. It was a mixed community. In fact, in many times, the community was overwhelmingly dominated by people with uncircumcised hearts who did not love the Lord. And that's why Israel was judged. But the New Covenant community, the church today, is very different than Old Testament Israel. And Jeremiah foresees it. We've been reading scriptures here that foresee it. He foresees a community of people where everyone in the community has experienced transformation in their hearts. In Israel, in Israel, there was always a remnant who was faithful to the Lord. But In the New Covenant community, talk of a remnant is totally irrelevant. There is no remnant. God says, I'm going to give them all a new heart. I'm going to put the fear of me in all of them so that none of them will turn away from me. The New Covenant community, the church, is a completely new kind of community where every member is a new creation. Because while Israel failed to keep covenant... God was intent on keeping His covenant that He made with their forefather, Abraham. Global blessing, global blessing is going to come, and it's still going to come through a chosen one of Israel. Not Isaac, 
but a far-off descendant of Isaac who comes not through the miraculous birth to elderly parents, but one born of a virgin. And Mary, part of that faithful remnant of Israel, gives birth to Jesus. And all of the births for 2,000 years between Abraham and Mary, all of the circumcisions, All of the waiting leads to this one moment when we are specifically told in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day because He is the one who will at last usher in a new creation. He is set apart and consecrated to God as a royal priest, a son of God, the son of God. He perfectly images the Father succeeding where Adam failed. Jesus is the true vine, the true Israel of God who, who, become, who would become God's perfect ambassador and representative in the world, a light to the nations. His outward circumcision reflecting true, wholehearted obedience and devotion to the Lord. Nobody lived like this man. And after his circumcision, he's brought to the temple. And there Joseph and Mary meet an old man named Simeon, who, like all godly men since Abraham, had been waiting for the promises to come true, waiting, the Gospel of Luke tells us, for the consolation of Israel. And while Simeon sees, and when Simeon sees the baby Jesus, he takes him, he takes that little baby, little eight-day-old baby, in his arms and says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon sees this child as bringing salvation to all peoples, just, uh, just like God promised Abraham. And Simeon, under the illumination of the Spirit, he knows how the chosen one will do it. He turns to Mary and he tells her that a sword will pierce your soul. Mary is going to see her son butchered and executed like a common criminal. That's why this baby was born that first Christmas. That was the chosen one's mission. That was his work. That was his destiny. Jesus knew it, and Jesus chose it, and Jesus ordained it, and Jesus embraced it. He said, for this purpose I have come. The purpose of Christmas is Good Friday, where Jesus, though Himself perfect, though Himself God in the flesh, will bear the sins of a spiritually uncircumcised people. And on the cross, God the Father will punish those sins in Jesus so that His people, all believing Jews and Gentiles who call on His name for salvation, can be saved from judgment. Outward circumcision is no longer required by God because the thing that circumcision pointed to has been fulfilled in Christ. But that does not mean that circumcision is irrelevant to the people of God today. If you have trusted in Jesus for your salvation, know that you have been forgiven, you have been brought into the new covenant people of God, the church, and, and listen to this, Whether you are a man or a woman, you have been marked out by God. You have been circumcised. As the Apostle Paul writes 
to the Colossian church, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision without hands is that spiritual heart circumcision that Jeremiah was referring to when he predicted the coming new covenant. And it is that circumcision that really marks out who the people of God really are. That's why the Apostle Paul can write that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. It is not that the church has replaced Israel. It is instead that God took that faithful remnant of Israel in the Old Testament, and that faithful remnant becomes the very foundation of the church. Unfaithful Israel has been broken off because of unbelief. And faithful Israel has been expanded so that we now find that everyone, everywhere, of every tribe and tongue and nation, Jew and Gentile alike, who has called on the name of the Lord Jesus, all such have been marked out and set apart with a circumcision made without hands, the circumcision of Christ, and now are grafted into the people of God. And so Paul writes in Galatians 6, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And it is because of our union with Christ that Paul, in the next verse in Galatians 6, can call a multiracial, multi-ethnic church full of Jews and Gentiles, he calls that church the Israel of God. Christ is the true Israel, but we become a part of it through Christ. Christ is the true Son of God, but we become sons through adoption in Christ. Christ is God's priest who mediates God's blessing to the nations, and we become a kingdom of priests through our union with Christ, pointing all nations to Him. Christ is the chosen one, and we too in Christ are God's chosen people. And because Christ wins and crushes the head of the serpent through His death, at the cross and His resurrection, we in Christ are more than conquerors with Him, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In Jeremiah 32, after God gives those wonderful promises about how He will work in our hearts and and make us a, a new creation that won't turn away from Him, we then hear something about God's heart. We hear about the heart of God. And God concludes His new covenant promise by saying, and I love this, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. How beautiful it is that even though our hearts were dark and lost and loveless and in rebellion against God, God's heart towards us was kind and loving and tender, zealous to do us good with all His heart and with all His soul. And His Son, Jesus, died to change our hearts, to make our hearts more like His. And in final fulfillment to His promise to Abraham, He will plant us and undeserving people in the land, in the new heavens and the new earth. He shall be our God, and we shall be His people. And so, in response, we should sing praise to God 
singing alongside of, of Mary, who months away from giving birth in that manger in Bethlehem, shouted out, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. Pray with me.